All right, good evening, everybody. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We're big time now. We got new rock out there. Did you see all the new rock? Yeah. So <laughs> for us, that's great. You know, you go over to the other churches with all the concrete and they're like, oh, new rock. Awesome. <laughs> you have no idea <laughs> how awesome it is. Oh, brother. In chapter 12 and 13, Paul wraps up his, probably his third letter. It's really 3 Corinthians, we think. With a promise of showing up. I'm going to be there. I'm going to see you guys. And um, I've written this letter ahead of time so that you have time to think it through, to digest it, to, to uh, you know, maybe go through all the emotions you need to go through with being corrected or rebuked. Because it does take some time. Um, I'm not a big fan of the whole gotcha movement when you go street witnessing. I'm not a big fan of that. It takes time for people to process what you're telling them. Um, the whole backing them into a corner and saying, you've got no choice, what are you going to do? Decide now, 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 now. That panicked, scary decision doesn't last long. They need time to think it through, to let it sink into their hearts. The Holy Spirit works that way. And so Paul, knowing that about people, because he loves them, and his goal is not to be right. His goal is not to be loud. His goal is not to be gotcha, caught you, I'm better. His goal was to change the hearts towards Christ, not even towards himself, towards Jesus. And so he takes the time in prison to write letters to these churches while he's suffering to build them up and do what he has to do as far as being a pastor goes. And give them time. I'm going to come to you, but I don't want to come to you. I want to come to you, and I want it to be awesome. You know, It's like Christmas is coming, and all your relatives are going to show up, and you want to make amends where any amends need to be made so that when we come, we can actually just celebrate the birth of Christ and not worry about all that tension in the room. You know? And so Paul writes this letter with that heart for the people. I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to say the hard things now, and I want you to think about it. When I get there, I want to come with joy, so because you guys have repented, because you've, you've figured it out, you've digested it and all, and uh, God's done a work in your hearts by the, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so that's where he ends this. It begins in verse 1, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So he starts off, I don't want to boast, but I find it necessary to do so. So what I'm going to talk to you about is some visions that I've had, or this person's had. It is Paul that he's talking about. He'll explain that later on, that I don't want to talk about myself, but I do want to talk about the person God showed all these awesome things in heaven, which happens to be me. Because he doesn't think of himself as anything. He says that as much in these chapters. I'm nothing, he says. But I want to talk to you about what God showed me. Because you guys don't believe that I'm of God anymore. That's the whole point of this whole letter, is to get them to understand who he is, and to remember who he is, and to believe who he is. He's someone who's set from God. And there's a reason for that, which we'll, we'll conclude with tonight. 
So he says, I want to talk to you about this third heaven that I got caught up to. And some people get confused by this and begin to make doctrines of levels of heaven. There's seven levels of heaven or something. No, there's three. And all Paul is saying is the first level of heaven is what you see in the daytime. That's our atmosphere, the blue sky. The second level would be nighttime. You see the space. Well, the third level is beyond all that. You know, That's the thing you can't think of when you're lying in bed. You try to think of the end of the universe. It about makes your mind explode, you know. I love doing that. I'm like, okay, so what's beyond that? And what's beyond that? And what's beyond that? You know, well, that's what he's talking about, where God is. And so God caught me up into that, he says. I don't know whether I was dead or whether I was alive. I don't know if it's a vision or whether it was like an afterlife experience, you know, an after-death experience or whatever, near-death experience. But I want you to pay attention to this because there's a lot of books out there about this stuff, isn't there? So many minutes in heaven or whatever, whatever, whatever. I want you to pay attention to what Paul the Apostle said about his experience, okay? If anybody should have wrote a book, right? This is how he describes it. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. What kind of words? Inexpressible. I can't tell you. He goes on to say, which is not lawful for a man to utter. This was so awesome and so incredible and so amazing, I'm not allowed to, by law, even explain these things to you. So I get a little concerned when people are a little flippant about their time up there and begin to write chapter after chapter after chapter about what they saw and what they did when Paul says it's not lawful and it's inexpressible. It just makes me wonder what they saw. Maybe they were warm and fuzzy things. And it does make us feel good to read books like that. But I wonder if we're not limiting, you know? If man can express it, and Paul, who did really see it, couldn't express it, I wonder if we're getting second best, third best, fifth best, whatever. Paul describes that as inexpressible and unlawful for me to utter these things. He says, of such a one, I will boast. I'll, I'll boast of that. Yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. He'll say that several times. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul is struggling with this. And at the end of tonight, we'll understand why he's struggling with this. But he must talk about himself being used by God for their sake. But he struggles with it, because I don't want you to think of me higher than myself, but I've got to do this. A couple things before we move on, I want to catch up on some of these things that he said up into paradise. It's kind of important for doctrine. It helps us with Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, beginning in verse 19 through 31, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and Lazarus. Okay? Because um, everybody asks the question, what happens to people or what happened to people who died before Christ? Where did they go? Where did they, you know, if Jesus was the first one into heaven, where did everybody who died go to then before that? Okay, and so Luke 16 explains that to us um, in this, uh, it's not a parable, it's an actual story, um, with the rich man and Lazarus. It's an actual account. So let me read it to you. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed 
with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Another word for that is paradise. Okay. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Paradise. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus at the time was foreshadowing what he was going to do, dying on the cross and being raised from the dead three days later. But the story gives us a background there. And so everybody that died before the cross went down to paradise. Here's the second verse that I want to cover. Luke 23, 43, Jesus is on the cross. He's flanked by two thieves. And this is the day of his death. And where does he go the day he dies? He descends into Hades, hell. Okay, that's where he's going. But here's what he says to the guy. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so you understand that everybody before the cross went down, but there are two sections. You've got those in paradise and that you've got those in Hades. Okay, when Jesus died and was resurrected, he took, led captivity captive. He led paradise up. He was the first one into heaven, but they all went with him. David knew that there was a Messiah coming, died in faith, but did not know the name. That's why Jesus was there for three days. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you were waiting for. And so they believed, obviously, and went up with him. And so from there on, after the cross, after the resurrection, you see paradise always mentioned as up before. It's always mentioned as down. And so it gives you some understanding of what the mechanics of the whole thing, how it all works. And so that's why Paul says, I was caught up into paradise. I saw where the throne is and so on. And so there's some background for that. Verse 7, back in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of um, the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Good song choice this morning or this evening. Did you know we were doing this? That's the Lord, isn't it? I love that. My grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He said that although I got this revelation that I can't talk about because it was so amazing, it's inexpressible and unlawful for me to do so, God let me have this thorn in the flesh, not in his spirit. There's a lot of speculation as to what this thorn is. What is this thorn that was given to him that's a messenger of Satan that buffets me lest I be exalted above measure? It's something that Paul prayed for three times to depart from him and God's response to his prayer was, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's good that you're weak because then I'm strong in you. What is this? There's a couple hypotheses, but I I believe it's written right here. I, I don't think you have to guess. He's talking about his infirmities. It's his physical infirmities that he's talking about. Something that he's prayed several times for God to take away, but wouldn't take away because it's good. And we'll go into some scriptures that might help us with that. But it's the infirmities. I boast in my infirmities because when I talk about my infirmities and everybody sees me as a weepy-eyed, weak, broken-down old man, they hear God. They don't hear a six-foot-six, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, buff, whoever. They hear God. And so Paul disappears, which is what he's always wanted to do whenever he preaches, is to just kind of disappear and that people would only hear what God wants them to hear. And so God's response was, my grace is is, is sufficient for you. That's enough, my grace. Some people think that it's sin, that Paul had a sin. There's something that he wished God would take away from him, but this sin just hung on. There was nothing he could do about it. And a lot of people use that as a crutch for themselves so that they can think, well, that's just my sin. That's that's my thorn in my flesh. And you hear that expression a lot. Oh, it's just a thorn in my flesh. Something I can do about it. Something God won't take away from me. Mm, Doctrinally, that's horrible. And it makes God a liar. He tells us that if he set us free, set us free indeed. There's nothing, there's not any sin that we're not set free from. And so for Paul to beg God to take away this sin from him, take away this temptation from him, this this weakness of his, that's wrong, it can't be right. It makes other parts of the scriptures lying. It makes God a liar. And so it's not that. Some people think it's a person because he says it's a messenger of Satan. Maybe someone was heckling him constantly. But then I don't think Paul would make it so personal. It's my weakness. And it's in my weakness. And so I think it's very clear. It's right in the text there. He talks about his infirmities probably seven times here. It's my infirmities. It's my sickness. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, he talks about, I believe, the very infirmity that he's struggling with here. It says in verse, I'll start in verse 12. Brethren, this is a letter to the Galatians. I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not uh, injured me at all. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now besides the obvious rebuke and correction that he's trying to teach the Galatians. He's also talking about the very infirmity he's trying to get across to the Corinthians here. 
this infirmity, this weeping eye problem that you guys, the Galatians, they would have traded places with me. They would, you know, every parent knows what that's like. God, just give me the sickness my kid is having. I would rather be sick than they be sick and be suffering like this. Every parent feels like that. That's how the Galatians felt for Paul. They received him as an angel of God, as Christ himself almost. They'd listen to him. Oh, God is just speaking through you. This is great. Oh, I'd, I'd give you my eyes if I could, Paul, you know. And that's what he's talking about, I believe. That's the example, or that's the infirmity that he's speaking of in 2 Corinthians here. He says, my infirmities, and why he's bringing that up in chapter 12, is because that's what his critics were saying about him at their church. Oh, he's got those weepy eyes. I mean, it's kind of gross to look at. I mean, how do you guys pay attention to that, Paul? I mean, he's just all over the place. He's hard to hear, hard to understand. He's got that squeaky voice, hooked nose, skinny falling apart, and those eyes, you know. And the Corinthians began to believe that about him. You know, oh yeah, I don't know about that. And Paul's saying, don't you know that's the very thing that kept me humble from seeing these awesome things from God that I can't even talk to you about? That's how great it was? God used that to keep my pride down also? And so he tells them about that. This isn't a, a badge of dishonor, it's a badge of honor. The infirmity. I think of uh, Pastor Scott Gerwell, Calvary Chapel of Liberty down there. I don't know if any of you know him. Um, he used to be a bodybuilder, a weightlifter, uh, got in a car wreck and obviously just never been the same since. Very difficult to walk as a cane constantly. And now he's on a motorized upright scooter thing because he can't move and function properly. He's always got a limp, but he's got a golden heart, you know. Um, and of course, when you first see him coming, that's the first thing you see, you know. I think we're all still kids at heart. When you see someone who's crippled up, it's hard not to look. Well, I'm not supposed to look, but I can't look away. You know, because it's strange. It's something you don't see every day. And so with him, he has to get up every Sunday and hobble up there and has a hard time getting up the stairs up to his podium to teach. But when he sits down and he begins to teach, they don't see that anymore. You know, he disappears and they hear Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, there's been a lot of prayers for healing for him, but it hasn't happened. And that's another thing. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't have enough faith. It means that God says, I don't want to heal you. It's in that, that I'm strong. That's what makes the message all the more powerful, Paul. You know, and some people don't understand that. They think it's a lack of faith. If you had more faith, you'd be, you'd be healed of that by now. Well, maybe not. How do you know? Paul healed other people. His apron healed more people than healed himself. You know, he, he, pretty spectacular works of God in his life, and he talks about that. But not for himself. So he explains that to him. This is not a badge of dishonor, it's a badge of honor. Verse 11. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been command, or commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. You see that struggle? I ought to be commended by you. I've, I've come to boasting about myself, and I feel foolish doing it, but you have compelled me to do this. I have to, and it's for their sake that he's doing it. I'm not boasting to help my reputation. I'm boasting to help you. And I'll explain that again at the end. Behind the most eminent apostles, I, I'm, but I'm nothing. I'm nothing, and neither are they is the idea. Truly, the signs of the apostles 
were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong sarcasm. Paul is pretty sarcastic. Let me see. What, what was the difference between us besides all the healings and the signs and the wonders that I did in front of you by the power of the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's right. I didn't charge you. I should have charged more for my speaking fee because that's the only thing that I left out of my package. The other churches, yeah, they got hammered by these guys' speaking fees. But when I showed up, I didn't charge you a dime. That's the hard thing with fundraisers. Remember the source fundraiser? That's a hard thing to sell tickets to, you know? Um, at one point, the conversation went to, but if you don't put some value on it, people won't value it. And so that's why we charged what we charged for it. I was on the board. I said, okay. You know, I'm just one, one of many on the board. And so we had a pretty empty crowd, you know? We didn't have a lot of people there. Um, and some people think that, and, and, and that is, but that's appealing to the flesh. You see, these guys that were coming in after Paul at the Corinthian church were appealing to the flesh. We are so awesome at talking, you must pay us to talk. Oh, they must be great. And sure enough, as soon as they paid them their $1,000 speaking fee, that was the best oration I've ever heard. It's like when you pay a lot for a meal. Wasn't that the best steak? I don't know. It's, you know, you can't be honest. It better be the best steak or you're the dumbest person, you know. <laughs> and so they've done this and Paul says, the only difference is that I didn't charge you enough. That's appealing to the flesh and Paul always wants to appeal to the spirit. And so he's sarcastic there. Forgive me this wrong. Verse 14. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you. I'm not going to charge you this time either. For I do not seek yours, but you. That's one of the greatest lines in the Bible. That's the greatest line of any pastor that they should ever have. I don't seek yours. I just want you, you know. That's the best marriage advice you could give anybody. That's the best parenting advice you could give anybody. That's the best presidential advice or Congress or Senate or anybody. I don't want yours. I just want you, you know? And Paul wants him so badly to know that. I am not after your stuff. I just want your heart because he's a messenger of Christ. For the children ought not to lay up for their parents or for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That breaks my heart to read that, you know? You read this Bible enough times, you get to start getting into Paul's head a little bit. You begin to flesh him out in your mind. He becomes real. You can almost hear him talking the more times you read it. And to hear him have to write this letter, it's embarrassing. It seems like the more I love you people at Corinth, the less I'm loved because it seems like weakness to you. You're used to getting, remember last week, beat up by your pastors. You're used to getting slapped around and feeling horrible by the time they were done talking. But all I talked to you about is grace and mercy and encourage you and tell you to get back up and keep moving. And you've, you've misconstrued me as being weak. The more I love you, the less I'm loved, he says. He says, I want to be spent and spend 
I'm not here to take from my kids. I want them to grow up and make more kids. A couple verses on that. This is God's heart, by the way. It's important that parents remember that. He's talking about spiritual things, but he's also talking about physical things. I'm not taking your money from you because I don't think kids should provide for their parents. There may be a time for that, and there may be a season for that in certain people's lives. That that happens. There's nothing you can do about it. I I don't want to be taken care of by my kids. I want to take care of my kids. And some verses that God, well, he lays them out here because it isn't just spiritual heritage. He's talking about physical things. In 1 Chronicles 28.8, he says, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, this is God, the assembly of the Lord, in the hearing of our God, be careful to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance for your children after you forever. It's a physical thing. I want to leave this land to you as an inheritance. Ezra 9.12, Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And then finally, Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Talking about grandkids now. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. He's talking about physical things. And so I threw those in there because there's some controversy. He's not talking about money. He's talking about leaving a spiritual heritage for your kids. Well, of course you're supposed to teach your kids about Jesus and the Bible and leave them that heritage. And have lived a life of good example for them to follow and to watch and to emulate. But you're also supposed to leave them with none of your debt and some extra so that they can help get a house or something like that. That's part of it. And that's Paul's heart for this. The parents aren't there for the, or the, the children aren't there for the parents. The parents are there for the children. It's an interesting conversation we're having in our country right now about asking the kids what they need, asking the kids what they want. And it's funny that they think the solution, well, that's the very problem. There's too many parents asking their kids what they should do as parents. And not enough parents telling the kids, here's what needs to happen for you because I'm more mature, I'm older, I have more wisdom, I've got a lot more experience. I'm not smarter, I just have more time behind me and I know how this works out. And the solution that we're trying to come up with is actually the very problem that's got us into this mess. We need parents to parent to love their kids enough to say no and give them boundaries and enforce those boundaries, you know? And to let them know, no, I want you to fly with wings, but I don't want you to crash and burn. And that's a big tall cliff and you're going to run right into it and you don't have enough altitude. Wave off, wave off, you know? And so Paul says, I'm here for you. You're not here for me. Verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with cunning. I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Didn't they act just like I acted when I sent them? I didn't send like henchmen after you to collect and all that. No, these guys walk just like me. And that's koinonia. That's a new word maybe for some of you. Koinonia is that oneness in the spirit. Uh, people are all for unity, and I, I could care less about unity. I want koinonia. I want being oneness in the spirit, not, not, not just because we're wearing the same shirt or we have the same brand or we're the same gender 
or we're the same age. I don't want that kind of unity. We don't want that kind of connection. We want koinonia, oneness in the spirit. It doesn't matter who anybody talks to or anybody from outside comes in and talks to anybody at Calvary Chapel. They're all talking about Jesus and how awesome he is and how the Holy Spirit is wonderful and how they love God and how they love his grace and mercy. There ought to be that, you know, constantly. And that should be for anybody in the body of Christ in any church. And Paul says, did I, you know, did I take advantage of you? Did I send anybody to take advantage of you? Of course not. We walked in the same steps. We're the, we're the same. We're the same, you know. They, they walk by my example. Verse 19, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak things, beloved, for your edification. We're here to build you up, okay? That's why we speak what we say. That's why we say what we say. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. I'm afraid if I showed up right now, I'd be angry. And I'm afraid if I showed up right now, you would not be happy with me showing up right now. That's the idea. And so, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented for the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Paul says, I I don't want these things to be there when I show up, because when I show up, that's what it's going to be like. So I want this letter to go before me, and I want this to get things straightened out. Now, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. The same list is in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. And this gives us a little understanding of what he's actually said to the Corinthians. He says, you're walking in the flesh. You may speak in tongues, you may do signs and wonders, you may do miracles, you may do all those wonderful, fabulous gifts of the Holy Spirit, but you are lacking the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You are walking in the flesh. Here's what he says to the Galatians, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're walking in the flesh. Now, right before that, if you back up to verse 16, he says this. This is what he's trying to teach the Galatians. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. That's the big question. That list in verses 19 through 21, I do one of those things. I've got to stop doing those things. And we focus so much on not doing those things. Paul had given them the solution in verses 16 and 17 and 18. Here's how you don't do those things. It's not by remembering. It's not by writing it on your mirror. Don't be a creep today. It's in this. If you walk in the Spirit, you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's when we're not walking in the Spirit that we're wide open to these things. And we've got to be careful. It's very important we walk in the Spirit. And finally, in Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. 
And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, or conceited, yeah, conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so Paul writes that same thing to the, to the Corinthian church there in, in a different way. I, I don't want to show up and have this be what I see, which is you walking in the flesh. So this whole rebuke here is to get them to walk in the Spirit. And as we read this, hopefully that's what God's doing for us tonight. Either encouraging us, saying, you're walking in the Spirit, good job, or you're probably not walking in the Spirit. And you need to get there. You need to be doing that. So, chapter 13. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Usually we think that means three different witnesses, but Paul says it's me, me, and me. Okay? I have told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek to a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. If that's what you're looking for, someone to be strong, keep doing what you're doing. Keep walking in the flesh. When I show up, disregard this letter. And I'm going to tell you to your face, as if Christ were telling you to your face, straighten up and fly right. Because you know? that's what the guys were doing at their church, just constantly beating them, never encouraging them, never building them up. If you want someone to speak, if you want proof of Christ speaking in me, what's going to happen? Just ignore this letter. You know? Now that's a tough love moment right there for Paul. He doesn't want that. And no parent wants that. We would much rather never have to discipline our kids. Wouldn't that be great? You know? But we need to, and we do, because we love them. And we know that if they can go continue, continue on that road unchecked, we know where that road leads, and they have to get checked. And we're the ones to do it. God's entrusted them to us. There's a lot of different kinds of animals out there that when they pop out, boy, there they are up and running, you know? God doesn't give our kids to us that way. First of all, we're not animals. We're completely different. <laughs> but he gives us little tiny mushy kids that have to be carried everywhere. They have to be fed because they can't feed themselves. They've got to be changed and, because they can't go to the bathroom right. You know, well, they do go right. It's just they go wrong, you know. <laughs> and so we have years of this. And then they start walking. And then we've got to start. That's when the boundaries come out. Oh man, they're on their own. It's no longer me carrying them wherever they need to go. Now they're up and moving on their own with their own mind, with their own will, and now I've got to set some boundaries because they're going to... What parent does it? If that doesn't work when they're one and a half or one years old learning to walk and you don't put a gate up by the stairs, well, I just wanted them to be a free spirit. Discover life on their own. Well, yeah, they've got a concussion, you know because you didn't put up the gate like you were supposed to. And as they become more mature, the gate comes down, but the doors stay shut. And as they're going outside to play, only when mom and dad's out there. But when they know they're supposed to stay in the backyard and not be in the front yard, not so much anymore. And as that responsibility and that understanding of the world around them and wisdom comes into their life, less and less needs to be done by the parents. 
That's what Paul's doing here. These are my spiritual children. I birthed you. I, I, you're born again by, by my words. When I shared Christ with you, you received Christ, and I've been carrying you, and I've gone away, but you're going a little crazy you now. And he's bringing in the boundaries again, giving them some wisdom. And so he says, this is the third time I'm speaking to you, and any parent knows what that sounds like. How many times do I have to tell you, you know? Wait till dad comes home. <laughs> Examine yourselves, he says in verse 5. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. You need to look at your, you know, faith. Are you a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Are you saved? That's the very question that I was confronted with. I, was, I grew up in the church. I know you know the story. I don't mean to repeat or beat a dead horse. But I grew up in the church, and at the age of 19, my roommate says to me, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because my Sunday schools all told me I was, you know? Because I was christened as a baby. What does that do? I don't know, but they said it was going to work. That's all I knew. Well, the Bible says this. It does? And it says this and this and this. It does? I started figuring out for myself, wait a minute, this is a personal decision I need to make. It's not something that I could get brought to or drug into or by attrition because they're my parents. I get in automatically for free. This is something I have to decide. Christ has to die for my sins. He has to be my personal Lord and Savior. I have to give my life to him willingly now. It's, I'm an adult. I've got to choose this now. Christ, I'm yours. And you're mine. And I had to make that decision, but I was confronted by a different kind of Paul. He says, you better examine yourself as to whether you're saved or not. And I did. And I wasn't. And I'm so glad I was asked that question. And as a heaping mass of blubbering, crying, three o'clock in the morning, I became a Christian. Born again. Nobody knew it. Nobody around me knew it. It was all between me and God. Just born like a baby at the age of 19 years old, you know, and I've never been the same since. A completely different person. Yeah, there's some remnants that still hang on, but for the most part, I'm different. Paul says, examine yourselves. Um, no, I didn't write the scripture reference down, but I'm going to read it anyway. It's somewhere, verse 18. But, but someone will say, oh, to James, of course. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That was the one that got me. You believe in God? Well, yes, I do. Good. Now you're even with Satan. Oh, well, I want to do a little better than him. <laughs> but do you, know, oh, do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, don't tell me you're a Christian, show me you're a Christian. 
If you can't be a Christian, if that isn't something that's in you, if you don't feel uh, uh, conviction by the things that you do that are wrong, you may not be saved. No Christian can sin without that conviction. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, boy, God, I'm sorry. And you have the conversation. Sometimes that's how I know I'm saved. I know I wish as a pastor I could say otherwise. I know I'm saved because I've, you know, I've got a tattoo that says I am or something. God gave me a seal. But no, a lot of times I find out I'm saved because I'm broken by my own sin. Oh, God. That's the first thing out of my mouth. And I'm not saying, oh, I got caught. I'm like, oh, Lord, what was I thinking? You know, why did I get so mad? Or why did I do this other thing? Or and I start talking to him. That's how I know. It's my go-to. It's my first thing. And when I do the right thing, and I surprise myself, that's not like you. I mean, nobody would have known if you'd done the other way. I know, but I just, I knew that that was the right thing to do, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. Hey, I'm saved, you know? Our actions, the way we walk, the way we speak, the way we think, our tendencies, our habits, show us our relationship with God, how close or how far away we are. And that's what Paul says. I want you to examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Is this right? Is this normal? What you guys have been saying about me since I've been gone? Is this right? Is this normal that you guys compete for uh, attention? That you compete for prizes? You know, for uh, I'm the most spiritual guy in the church? Do you, you think that's right? Examine yourselves. Verse 7. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Um, not that we should uh, appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. In other words, I want you to do no evil, not because it looks bad for us when you do do evil, but it's for your sake that you do the right thing. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Uh, I'm sorry, nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete Therefore, and here's the key, I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. I'm writing you this so that you guys can straighten up. And here's what I wanted to say this whole time. This, what Paul's doing here, Paul's, I had to write it down. Paul's, I had a hard time crafting it. The words might not be exactly what I wanted to say, but hopefully you get the point. Paul's defending himself seems to him boasting and is cringeworthy in his mind. Like he said before, I am nothing. But if the message of God has given him, I'm sorry, if the message God has given him to speak, um, and he remember he said, proof of Christ speaking in me, if it can't be heard because of the malicious maligning of his character, then he must defend his reputation and reestablish his authority for the sake of Christ's message and their growth. Paul's not concerned what they think about him. He's concerned that they're not paying attention to his message because of what they think about him. And that's more important to him. You must hear Christ. You must hear the word of God. And if if I need to do this, I will boast to let you know that I am of God. He took me into heaven. I've done awesome signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what I'm saying is true to you. Please believe the words of God. That's what he's saying. He could care less about his reputation. I'm nothing. I know that. But so that you know that what I teach you is truly from God, that is proof of Christ speaking in me, fine. Here's the letter that shows it. And he's hoping that they get it. And they do. 
And we'll close here with this. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So do you want the love, the love of God and the peace of God to be with you? Then do those things. Um, become complete. Good comfort. One mind. Live in peace. Okay? Greet one another with a holy kiss. They did that back then. Hard to be mad at somebody when you give them a holy kiss, you know. We, we won't be, we'll give a hearty handshake here, but it would be hard, wouldn't it? And I, you know, anyway. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And of course, he ends there with the Trinity. Lord Jesus, the love of God and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for Paul's heart. What a tough letter for him to write. But as a good parent, he does the tough things, the self-sacrificing things. Um, they may not like him at the end of this letter, but he doesn't care. It needs to be said. They need to hear the words of Christ. And so therefore, he writes this letter for them, for their gain, for their edification, for them to grow and to do better. God, I pray that you give us the same heart, the same boldness, the same adulthood, the same maturity, Lord, that we would have that same heart, that it doesn't matter whether everybody loves us or not, but we'd speak the truth and we'd speak it in love. And Lord, help us to not be like the Corinthian church. Help us to not malign someone's character or to be that way about someone that we know nothing about or that we feel like we're in competition with. Um, we, we thwart and can thwart the work of God in someone's life by doing that. So Lord, help us to be careful about that. Lord, whatever you showed us tonight, each one of us probably received something different by the power of your Holy Spirit, and it's worked its way into our hearts. Um, your sword, the Word of God is your sword, and it, it has cut tonight. We pray that it would do, you would do a great work in us, Lord. We want to surrender everything we have to you, everything you've showed us tonight, every truth, every, every change, every edification, even an exhortation or correction. We receive it with gladness because we know where it comes from, a loving Father a Father who does the hard things, a Father who wants us to have great fellowship with Him, have a wonderful koinonia with Him, um, but will say what needs to be said to bring about our excellence. As we're being conformed into Your Son, Jesus Christ, each and every day, God, help us to yield and let You. Lord, bless these guys as they go tonight. Help them have a good night, a safe night home, um, but also I pray that Your Word would stay buried deep in our hearts that would have deep roots and uh, bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.